reading from Luke 23, starting at verse 32. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals, who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Our Father, we pray that you would help me to be faithful to your word and us all to be good listeners as Graham has prayed. Take us to Calvary. Take us to the cross in our minds and hearts that we might worship God for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of my favorite hymns is Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance that Jesus is mine. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed. This is my story. This is my song. As a title for the verses that Sarah read, Luke 23, 32 to 43, conversion at Calvary. Two other people were crucified with Jesus, one on his left and one on his right. The prophet Isaiah said that would happen. The prophet said that Jesus would be numbered among the transgressors. All that is happening at the cross is in fulfillment of what God said would happen. These are divinely ordered, planned, purposed events to save humanity. It is God's will that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors that he would die alongside criminals, those justly condemned. Jesus, unjustly condemned, dying alongside those justly condemned. Now Luke makes that point very carefully that we might note it. Verses 32 and 33, let me read them again. Two others who were criminals 
were led away to be put to death with him. And he came to the place that is called the skull, and they crucified him and the criminals. Notice the distinction that Luke is making. Those justly condemned, and Jesus unjustly condemned. One of the criminals was converted at Calvary. He turned to Jesus for his salvation. The other did not. One went to heaven and one went to hell. Luke's purpose in writing is that we understand that their story is our story, that their story is all of humanity's story. And is it not all of humanity's story that one turns to Jesus for salvation while another does not? That one dies and goes to heaven, that another dies and goes to hell. Jesus does not save en masse. Every conversion is as individual as this man's conversion. Every rejection of Jesus is as individual as this man's rejection of Jesus. It is important that we do not sentimentalize Luke's account or diminish the power of God and the grace of Christ that is revealed here. Both men were sinners, both were criminals. Both were guilty of their crimes, probably robbery or insurrection. And lest we think that one of the two was more likely to be saved than the other, lest we think that one had a softer heart than the other, at least at first, Matthew and Mark in their Gospels tell us that initially both criminals railed at Jesus. Let me read a couple of verses from Matthew and Mark's accounts. Firstly, Matthew 27, 38, and 44. Then two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. And the robbers, both of them, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. Mark 15, 32. Those who were crucified with him, both of them, also reviled him. And that's striking, both of them. How did they revile Jesus? In the same way the others did around the cross. Back to Luke's account. Notice how people reviled Jesus. Verse 35, the rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Well, verses 36 and 37, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there is strong irony. Jesus could save himself from death, 
but it's precisely what he will not do in order to save us. Criminals crucified with Jesus said the same. In Luke's account, it's just the one, but we know it was both at first. Verse 39, are you not the Christ? And try and get into your mind how that would have been said in his agony. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It is a cynical, contemptuous, despairing comment. And the question is, Jesus, save your skin and save ours. Get me down from this cross. And there are echoes here of the kind of prayer countless people pray in the crises of their lives. Not believing people, all sorts of people, calling to God to rescue them. Might be in sickness or danger or a business venture gone wrong. And people pray, God, if you're there, help me. And sometimes we add a promise, if you do, I will. And if, for whatever reason, the crisis passes... Well, God is usually forgotten. Both these men crucified with Jesus reviled him. But one was converted. One was woken up to reality, came to his senses. Senses about himself and about Jesus. And he turned to Jesus with true understanding and asked Jesus to save him. And Jesus did. Now, what caused this man to see? What brought about this remarkable conversion at the 11th hour in his life? The mercy and the power of God. Consider the merciful providence of God that he should be crucified next to Jesus. The verses that follow in Luke's account describe the other conversion at Calvary, the Roman centurion who supervised the execution, the providence of God that he should be on duty that day. But you might say that kind of providence does not happen in my life. But whoever you are, are you not listening now to this account of Jesus' death? You've happened to tune in. There are a thousand things you could be doing. But you're listening to this. Consider the merciful compassion of Jesus that at this moment, with all that he was enduring, bearing sin, bearing wrath, soon to be separated 
from his Father, Jesus, focus is on saving this man. That is extraordinary love. Consider the power of God alongside the grace of God, the power of God to open his eyes, to open his mind and heart, to bring this man to his senses as he lapsed in and out of consciousness, in the physical and emotional agony of his circumstances, God awakened his consciousness and brought him to his right mind. Every conversion is a miracle of revelation from the Lord. Now, I want us to consider this man's conversion and to do so with this question for us all. Is his story your story? This is my story. This is my song. Is it? If it is, rejoice in it. Now, let's consider his conversion. Firstly, in terms of what he came to understand about himself. And this is true of every conversion. Just a little reminder in case you've forgotten already of that song, if you know the tune, in the back of your mind. This is my story. This is my song. Every conversion involves coming to an understanding about us, who we are, who I am, that I am a sinner, guilty, and justly condemned. And it's as you come to terms with that that your head goes down in humility that I am a sinner, that I am guilty, that I am justly condemned. Is your head down or up? To use Paul's language in Romans, familiar to us from our small groups, he recognizes that he is unrighteous and under condemnation. Read with me verses 40 and 41. But the other, the one who is converted, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. He is a sinner, and he acknowledges that. So am I. Do I? Acknowledge it. So are you. 
But I have not sinned like this man, you might say. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not one. Coming to terms with that is as hard for us, perhaps even harder than it was for this man on the cross. He is a sinner. He knows that he is. He is aware of his guilt. And he knows that the just penalty for sin is condemnation, what he deserves, what he is facing, not the sentence of death on the cross because of his crimes but the sentence of eternal condemnation in hell because of his sin. And with that realization, a realization that must come to every person who is converted, there comes with it the fear of God. Fear of God. This is my story All of a sudden, a soul, awakened, woken up with a start to a consciousness of God and the eternal. He fears God. He fears the eternal judgment of God beyond death. The Holy Spirit has convicted him of the terrible reality as a sinner of falling into the hands of an angry God, experiencing hell for eternity. And to add to his guilt, he had moments before been blaspheming the Messiah. Now let's pause here for a moment. Fearing God is a frightening experience. And we're not talking about the fear of God that a Christian has, the right reverence for God. The fear of God at conversion is the fear of falling into the hands of an angry God for eternity in hell. Fearing God is a necessary and true part of conversion. One cannot be converted without realizing what salvation is from. But know this, the fear of God comes from God by the conviction of the Holy Spirit in order to bring you to your senses and to lead you to salvation. To be woken up to the reality of eternity and judgment. To experience the fear of God. To fear falling into the hands of an angry God is a blessed thing. Blessed assurance. This is my story. This is my song. Second, let me say this. When I said a moment ago that adding to this man's guilt 
was that he had been blaspheming the Messiah, I knew in saying that, that it would have pierced someone's heart listening. Someone who is racked with that guilt, that question from their past that they have blasphemed Christ and cannot be forgiven. As this man hung on the cross in physical agony, he had railed at Jesus. He had blasphemed him. And as he hung dying, God had wonderfully broken into his life, opening his mind and heart, but like the nails piercing his hands and his feet, Satan would be whispering in his ear to pierce his heart, it's too late. Jesus will not forgive you now because you have just blasphemed his name. Now, that is not true. Because this man is contrite, repentant, and sorry. And whoever you are listening, bedeviled with the doubt that Jesus has not forgiven you, let this man's experience at Calvary banish any such doubts from your minds. And I want to encourage you, if you are listening, and that is not a fear you have, just in the quiet, as the Word of God is proclaimed, to pray for such now. That God would deliver them from these arrow shots of the devil of doubt. Under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, God brought this man to his senses. In the mercy of God, he came to understand that he was a sinner guilty and justly condemned to eternity in hell. The fear of God gripped his heart, his mind. Is his story ours? It is mine. And I say that not out of any arrogance, but just out of the certainty that Luke's gospel brings us. This is my story. This is my song. What he came to understand about himself. Second, what he came to understand about the Lord Jesus. That Jesus was without sin innocent and unjustly condemned. Read with me again verses 40 and 41. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Now that's the one thing that no one around the time of Jesus' crucifixion would have denied. He's done nothing wrong. And again, to use the language of Romans, this man who hung beside Jesus recognizes that Jesus is righteous. 
And in that, Jesus is alone among humanity, the only righteous one. But not only was he aware of the injustice of Jesus on the cross beside him as a righteous man, but something much, much more. What had he come to understand that through his death, Jesus would establish his kingdom? Just look with me at verse 42. And he said or prayed, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows, he understands that Jesus is a king. He knows, he understands that Jesus is the ruler of the world to come beyond death. He knows that Jesus is going to survive crucifixion and establish a marvelous, everlasting kingdom. Does he know? Does he understand that what Jesus is doing in the cross is dying for him? To forgive him and so bring him into his kingdom? Does he understand that? What he must have. Undone by his own sin and guilt. Facing eternal condemnation. He looked at Jesus and saw a righteous man condemned. He saw a man naked and powerless and bruised and bloodied with a crown of thorns on his head. And he saw his Savior. He saw the only one who could forgive his sins and bring him into his eternal kingdom. Now, how could he see that all? How could he see all of that? How could he have come to understand that? Well, as they were crucified, he had heard Jesus say, what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had heard that. He was close enough to hear that. If Jesus could forgive the people who crucified them, then he could forgive him. Who else heard Jesus say these words? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Perhaps the centurion who was converted. Beyond all that, though, this man came to understand at the 11th hour of his life because God opened his mind to understand. God opened his heart. He came to understand that Jesus was without sin, innocent and unjustly condemned. He came to understand that Jesus is a king, the ruler of the world to come beyond death that Jesus is going to establish his everlasting kingdom. He knows he needs forgiveness, and he knows by God's grace that only Jesus can forgive him. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't have time. 
He knows enough. He knows what pertains to the heart of the gospel. He does not have the privileges we have of Christian history. He doesn't have an open Bible. He doesn't know what we know. He was hardly conscious. But he knows what he needs to know to be saved. Maybe as a Jew, I guess he was a Jew, there was stuff in his upbringing, in his childhood that came flooding back into his mind. We don't know. Now there's a warning there. Were we at the 11th hour? We might stop asking questions. Apart from the one that he asked, Jesus, save me. Is his story your story? what he came to understand about himself, what he came to understand about Jesus. Third, what he asked. Notice, asked Jesus. Not what he did, what he asked or prayed. Verse 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What was his contribution to his eternal salvation? I mean, it was God who opened his mind. What was his contribution? Jesus, remember me. He doesn't do anything. He just asks Jesus to save him. He doesn't do anything because he can't. I mean, his hands are nailed to a cross. You know that children's chorus just come into my mind? Probably you don't. What can these little hands do? What can my little feet do to serve Jesus? This man could do nothing. He has nothing to offer to Jesus in his life. He cannot make up for it now. It is too late. He cannot do anything. All he can do is turn to Jesus as life ebbs out of his body and say, Jesus, remember me. But he does something extraordinary. He uses Jesus' name. I haven't noticed that until this week. He says, Jesus. which means the Lord saves. His words, remember me, do not express uncertainty or blind hope as much as they express a deep, deep, deep humility. And whether we come to Jesus for salvation at the 11th hour like this man, right at the end of his life, or when we are a teenager, an adult in midlife or whatever, whatever our background, whatever we have done, however religious we are or have been, none of that can contribute to our salvation. This man's story must be ours.
nothing of ourselves we bring simply to the cross. We cling. We often say that salvation cost Christ everything and cost us nothing. Now that is true, of course, that is sound Christian theology. We do not contribute anything to our salvation. But in another sense, it costs us a great deal to admit all this. We must, though, come to terms with the fact that when it comes to our salvation, we need to put everything onto the shoulders of Jesus, our sin upon his shoulders. And the way we speak about becoming a Christian is important. We often use phrases like trusting Jesus for our salvation or giving my life to Jesus. Now, that's fine as long as we mean by them coming in repentance and humility to Jesus with nothing to offer him. When I say, I give you my life, Jesus, do not think for a minute there is anything in that that he needs or merits salvation. What he came to understand about himself, about Jesus, what he asked Jesus, and fourthly, what Jesus did. It's very wonderful. It's very moving. Jesus saved him. That's it. He took upon his shoulders this man's sin at this hour and the everlasting condemnation he deserved. Jesus was willing to be forsaken for this man so he could be forgiven. It's a straight answer Jesus gives. Verse 43, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not, I'll think about it. Or not, silence. Sometimes religion's answer is silence. Or even do not presume that God will give you certainty. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly I say to you, Jesus only said, truly I say to you. And remember he is dying. Crucifixion kills people by asphyxiation. He has very, very few words that he can say. Truly, I say to you, Luke, whatever else you are in doubt about, this is gospel truth. Truly, I say to you, what did the man receive? Forgiveness of his sins, absolution, no condemnation. That's what Jesus does. Whoever we are, whether we come in the 11th hour or the first hour of our life, when we come to him in genuine repentance for salvation, we are fully forgiven, absolved of guilt, no condemnation, saved at that moment from eternal hell to eternal life. A great forgiveness and a glorious future. Today, you will be with me in paradise, immediately on death. The believer is in paradise or heaven. The word paradise is used here. It's a synonym for heaven. Why is paradise used? Because it means garden, I guess, a contrast with Gethsemane. Today you will be with me in paradise, eternity with Jesus. And the promise that Jesus made is so gracious. If you were to ask... The man on the cross, imagine there he is. He's just become a Christian, this man. And you say to him, 
How do you feel now that you've prayed the prayer? What would his answer be? Awful. As he fought for breath to say that. But I have a promise. Today, I will be with Jesus in paradise. That's why we're so cautious when people say, what do you feel as a Christian? Often the answer is awful. But we have a promise Now, as we finish, is his story your story? Do not hold back because of peer pressure. You know, that man on the cross had to break ranks with his fellow criminal. You know, we cannot be as thick as thieves forever. Don't you fear God? Don't hold back because you don't have all the answers. Don't hold back because there is plenty of time. And don't hold back because if you do, you will miss out on living a Christian life. I wonder if in that man's final hours, he would be saying to himself, if only... But I hope and pray that what would have dominated his mind was today, you will be with me in paradise. To come to faith at the end of your life secures an eternity with Jesus, but you miss out on the Christian life. The man was able to do something for Jesus, though. He stood up for Jesus. Don't you fear God, he said to the other criminal. And I wonder if his conversion at Calvary would have been a comfort that Jesus took into these hours of forsakenness from his Father. Conversion at Calvary, but also rejection. The other man, no fear of God, no fear of judgment, no fear of sinfulness, no sense of justice, of guilt, no desire for righteousness, no desire for reconciliation. Today he went to hell. Can I dare to ask if the other criminal's story is anyone listening's story? If it is, it need be no more. Now, our time is all gone. Conversion at Calvary. That, of course, is no surprise. Because Jesus' work is saving people. Let me close with this comment. Never, ever lose heart that someone you love very dearly who is not yet a Christian can be converted. Never lose heart or hope, even as someone nears the end of their life, 
even after a lifetime of indifference or antagonism to Jesus. Never forget that Jesus' business is saving, even at the 11th hour. How can you break through with someone who is so resistant? Well, you do need to tell them the gospel. But as much, if not more, than speaking to them about God, speak to God about them. Ask others to pray with you for them. Keep on asking God that he would, in his grace and mercy, bring them to their senses. Never doubt that he can. Do not presume that they did, but do not be surprised if in eternity we meet some or many.